Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 65. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by the man from Texas today, none other than Mr. Chad Owen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. I am recording in my home state of Texas. I've uh, left Brooklyn the cold of Brooklyn for the the warmth and sunshine of Texas. Cannot say I'm uh, missing that cold, <laughs> wintry weather one bit. Uh, but I'm, I'm more excited to uh, to be diving into another author series with you, Mike. Yeah, and listen, we we just wrapped up Brené Brown, which was really a bit of a jump from the normal authors' topics and themes that we cover. Mm-hmm. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So if any of our listeners are wondering what we're talking about with Brene Brown and didn't get a chance to listen to those shows, jump on moonshots.io and go have a listen to her. But just when you thought we had done all the good authors, there could not possibly be another author to blow our mind. Well, you're all sadly wrong, Chad. Because who wait, do wait, we... Wait, wait, wait. I have one for you, Mike. You have one, Chad? <laughs> Come on. Tell yeah. us who. If you have not read something by Jim Collins before, you're in for a treat here because we've got three episodes coming at you, starting with today's, which is profiling his and Jerry Porras's book, Built to Last. And mm. I don't know about you, Mike, but the case studies and lessons learned from these books have informed so much of work and strategy and just even concept of what makes a good business. Um, since I first read it, probably, I want to say 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, uh, it is. um, The body of work from Jim is pretty amazing, isn't it? And Chad, do you notice how many people you've met uh, through our work that have actually not only read Jim Collins, but the topics that he talks about come up continuously. He's almost Drucker-esque in having coined, uh, you know, the hedgehog concept, you know, good to great, built to last, like all of these ideas come back to his really deep analytical academic work. Mm-hmm. I think he, you know, he is sort of, He's right up there with the Druckers, the Christiansons, the Cynics. For me, when I had a chance to re- read his book, Good to Great, many years ago, it was such a light bulb moment for me. How about you, Chad? What's been your experience with his work? What I love about his and Jerry and his whole team's approach to this work is if you've been a listener of this show for any amount of time, you know how Mike and I love to geek out about mental models, frameworks, etc. And my favorite part of Jim's work is it is so deeply rooted in the research that he doesn't just have a eureka light bulb moment in the shower. Uh, He pours through hundreds of years of data uh, (laughs) from these companies to identify the common factors uh, that makes a a company, what's his phrase? Um, Extraordinary. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what how he characterizes the the built to last companies, but everything is is rooted in the data uh, for what makes a great company versus what uh, makes uh, a company that's not going to be around for very long. Mm. And interestingly, whilst covering different topics, both to Cal Newport and Brene Brown, all three of them 
Jim included, have a bias towards this rigor to go research and understand the subject. Mm -hmm. So we have in this show, we're going to cover Built to Last, but subsequently in the next two shows, we're going to cover Good to Great, perhaps his most famous work, and Great by Choice. And it's our hope that for all of you who are listening, that you can take some huge, huge aha moments uh, away. Now, if you're familiar with some of the work, uh, then hopefully it's a great recap. But what we what we really want to do is remind people that there is so many powerful ideas that you can action, uh, thoughts that can change your approach to building a company, building a product, or anything in between. And I, I just can't wait to dig into to Built to Last because if you were to characterize the three books we're going to cover, you know, Built to Last is very much about what's the, the philosophy, what's, what's the culture of your organization. Great by Choice is a book that's really all about the rigor and the practices uh, and the discipline to be great. And Good to Great, it really deals with the human, the people, and the culture side of what it takes to shift a business from just merely being good to being great. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to get stuck in, Chad. Uh, I think this is just essential reading, essential thinking for anyone who has to work with more than one person every day. Like if, if by proxy of your work, if you've got two people in the room, then you got to read Jim Collins because it's going to help you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of one of the things you can expect from from Mike and I is as we profile these three books is whether you're an investor, an employee that's you know vetting a potential company you want to work with, if you're a founding team, and anyone and everyone in between, all of the principles learned uh, across these books will serve you very well. And it's uh, Mike's and my job to bring to the surface some of the more interesting insights from these books. Mm-hmm. But before we dive into Built to Last. Just wanted to remind everyone that this and all future episodes and all of our previous episodes uh, can be found at moonshots.io. And uh, Mike and I love getting the feedback from everyone uh, through the form on the website or emailing us at hello at moonshots.io. And uh, just want to give a shout out to all of our new and first time listeners here in the fantastic year of 2020. Uh, We're excited to have you uh, as a part of our audience here on Moonshots. Yeah, and I, I really want to point out to folks that if you if you see anything that you like in the world, a book, an author, a visionary, an entrepreneur, an innovator, please reach out to us and, and tell us, give us your recommendations, your suggestions, your ideas and inspiration. Mm-hmm. But we have some listeners who are so committed to these adventures in innovation. I just want to thank Kerry, who actually was, uh, you know, checking out moonshots.io and she even found buried away in an old episode, there was a typo in one of the show notes <laughs> and she took the time to, to give us a heads up. So, Kerry, happy new year to you. Thank you for helping us uh, clean up our act a little bit. And uh, we encourage anyone and everyone to reach out to us, uh, give us feedback because it really makes us closer to you, gives us a good sense of what everyone's after, what everyone would like, and um, gives us a little bit of inspiration along the way. 
We have a great introduction clip here where we get to learn not only uh, the origins of the book, but one of the companies that, that was also part of the inspiration to, to start this long uh, research and publishing career of Jim's that's, that's been so fruitful since, I believe, 1994, which was uh, 25 going on 26 years uh, ago. So here, here is uh, how to build the right organization. In my own first encounter with uh, Drucker's contribution, uh, it really came through a research lens. And my colleague Jerry Porras and I were engaged in a research project at Stanford where we were trying to understand what separated truly enduring great companies from others over long periods of time. And we were going back into historical archives. Uh, so, for example, of companies like Hewlett-Packard and Merck and Motorola and Johnson and & Johnson and General Electric. And, and we were studying these companies over the long course of their evolution. And so you'd be going through boxes of archive material at places like HP, and you actually have you know, David Packard's original typewritten notes from the very, very first meeting on August 23, 1937, at 2 p.m. in the afternoon when he and Bill Hewlett got together to form Hewlett-Packard. By the way, there's a very interesting little side note on that. It's very fun. Uh, they didn't know what they were going to make, which I've always just loved. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, they get together and say, we decided to form a company in the radio, electronics, and electrical engineering field, very broadly defined. And then it goes on to say, the question of what we will design, manufacture, and sell, however, was postponed. And this is the founding of the company. But if you think of it, it's, it was a very Drucker-like approach, because what they essentially were saying is, our ultimate contribution, our ultimate product is not going to be a calculator or an oscillator. It's going to be an organization that has values. And if we build the right organization with values, it will do remarkable things. But that is our creation, not a product, not a specific, though all that stuff changes. And as we started looking inside these organizations, and we were studying them, and I, I was not particularly familiar with Drucker's work as in, as in depth, kept coming across these notes, and I kept picture like David Packard standing up in the early formative days of HP, waving a practice of management and giving a sermon to all of the people about what you're going to do. If you go back and you look at the original statement of Hewlett-Packard objectives, written by David Packard in 1957 before they went public, because he said, we're going to have pressures of the markets if we go public. So what we have to do is we have to be very clear what we are before we hit that pressure. Writes down what later became the basis of the HP way, but was really what he called these 10 objectives. Objectives, where's the word objectives come from? Right from Drucker, right? He writes them down, and if you read those 10 points, they are straight out of the practice of management. Wow. I, don't you love one of the, the greatest companies of the last century? The founders got together and they said to themselves, we're going to build a great company together. And by the way, these two guys created something called the HP Way. And I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes to this. This is all total Jim Collins, Simon Sinek kind of stuff because hmm. it's all about behavior and culture. But, Chad, don't you just love the fact that, like, one of the greatest uh, technology companies got together founded the company, and then they're like, oh, yeah, and by the way, what's the product? Uh, who knows? We'll defer that. We'll cover that in another meeting. Like that is so perfectly sums up built to last. 
Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, even just my interactions with you and how you're always uh, speaking about the importance of teams uh, when it comes to building great products and, and great cultures. Uh, here we have an example in a company like HP that's, you know, goes back, what do you say, to 1937, mm-hmm. where they, they knew they wanted to make some electronics, but they had no idea exactly what. We're going to hear even more about the importance of people over product uh, in in further clips here on on the show. And let's let's just break this down a little bit because Chad and Mike love building a good product. Don't get us wrong. But what we understand is the way to build a great product is to build a great company, which comes down to the people, the culture, how you behave with each other is everything, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the interesting kind of metaphor for me is it's the founding team that's creating a company that will be the engine of innovation and creation of new products that in some ways it's not the founding team's primary goal to to come up with the idea of the iPhone no it's it's Steve and Steve's job <laughs> sorry for the puns there <laughs> is there uh, <laughs> It's the Steve's jobs to come up with a company that can create not just a product like the iPhone, but the iMac, the iPod, the, you know, the countless innovations that have spun out of Apple since its inception in the seventies. And there's so many other examples of, of, of companies that have had similar philosophies where yes, they were maybe capitalizing on a market opportunity and idea, but the companies that have stood the test of time have proven that they can come out with continuous uh, innovation and, and products that continue to delight customers. Yes. So, so let's zoom out a little bit and ask ourselves, so how does this built to last philosophy fit in? How can we understand it? How can we decode it? It's essentially saying, don't obsess about today. If you want to be great today, have an idea about what you want to do tomorrow and tomorrow and the future is about legacy and an enduring contribution to the world. If you have those things and those desires, that vision and, and that commitment, you can build a great team and you can, of course, then you could go off and build great products. That's what we're saying. So where this sort of integrates with other frameworks and thoughts is Cinec is was really powerful. And don't forget to go to moonshots.io and check out all our Cinec shows. But Cinec says, look, People don't buy what you do. It's the how and the why that matter so much. And that's dovetailing perfectly into uh, this built-to-last idea, focusing on why are we doing the things we do and how are we going to do them is such a big piece of success. And even if you go to Drucker, Drucker has a lot of stuff around being rigorous and being disciplined, but he also touches heavily upon what it takes to be a good manager, how to help others around you. And I think the great thing about Jim Collins's work, and in particular what we're getting today, is he is um, such a powerful, related thought leader in a similar space. I think what he's challenging us on uh, with this book is it is all going to come down if you want to have an enduring company built to last it's all going to come down to how and why what is your culture 
Because if you have those things in place, you'll get great people, you get great products. And I think that's the gift, isn't it, Chad? Yeah. And, and, and Jim Collins and, and Jerry Porter's and the Stanford team's work is in some ways a validation of the, the framework and management practices of Peter Drucker. And he's saying it was because of Drucker's influence on the HP founders that they came up with their 10 objectives that would then transform into the HP way, which forms the bedrock of that company's culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've actually got this great clip of uh, Collins speaking at the Drucker Institute, and he's sort of riffing here. So when he's referring to Drucker so much, he's, he's actually drawing connectivity and connection and relationships between his work and Drucker. So let's have a listen to Jim Collins talking at the Drucker Institute. Uh, we tossed aside tw- 125 titles in frustration. Our publisher was going nuts because we just kept vetoing all of our titles. Finally, I just blurted it out one day, why don't we just name it Drucker Was Right and we're done. <laughs> and we ended up calling it uh, Built to Last, which of course uh, he was. The interesting thing, we talk about this question of Drucker now more than ever. Um, I don't believe that that is just a slogan in any way. It is an empirical fact from our research. This is not a perspective, it's not a philosophy, it is an empirical fact that if you look systematically at those that became great in contrast to those that do not, and you look at those that were great that lost it, that fell, and you ask the question, two choices, those that get, those get in, uh, those that fall, fall A, because they fail to learn the new stuff as it comes along, or B, because they fail to implement with excellence the timeless principles we already know to be true. The answer is very clearly B. It is very hard to argue that the financial crisis we went through is because all of the financial institutions were adhering to fundamental sound disciplined management. I I love the alternate title of Drucker is right. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> and and I love his little dig there like you can't possibly tell us 2008 and Lehman Brothers and all of that was because these guys were practicing sound management approaches, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it it sounds too simple or too good to be true, but as he said, it's an empirical fact. You know, across the eighteen twenty companies that are profiled in the book, most of them are around for a uh, hundred years. So they looked at two thousand years of business history, and Drucker's principles were proven to be true. And so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't plug our episode on on Peter. But that's in addition to Simon and, and everyone else we're mentioning. You, you've got to go back and, and listen to our episode on on Peter Drucker. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. and the, I think you can get much of um, the re- the relationship to Jim Collins's work through the principles of management, which is kind of you know Drucker's tome uh, of of management knowledge. Mm, mm. And I think the uh, where this all takes us is a timely reminder that a lot of these things may sound a little self-evident, but if you've really, and I'm going to borrow from Brene Brown here, but if you've been in the arena 
you know how hard it is to consistently come back to them and do them in a disciplined and rigorous way. And we can just get lost in the fog of war. And um, that's why uh, revisiting this book together is so much fun for me, Chad. And I really hope that this is really starting to inspire some of our, our listeners. And coming up later in the show, we're going to go deep on what it takes to have the vision of an enduring company. And we'll actually get the chance to hear from Jerry Porras, which is uh, Jim's co-author on Built to Last. And we have an absolute doozy of a clip, um, a highly caffeinated Jim Collins, who's absolutely on fire. So that's all to come. Um, But what I want to do right now together with you, Chad, and our listeners is put this into context. You you actually mentioned the, the, the... the companies that are on the built to last list. These are companies that are like enduring top performers, world-class. Some of them on the list include 3M, American Express, Disney, GE, J&J, Philip Morris, Procter Gamble, Sony Walmart, and a bunch of others. If you look at the list, Chad, who do you, is there one there that stands above them all that is, you're like, wow, that is the best example of an enduring built-to-last company. Uh, There's like the professional in me and then there's the, I'll call it the kid in me. It's really hard to overlook Disney, especially given what I think is huge wins on the part of getting Bob Iger into position to run the company and steward, I think, a whole new you know, entrance into competing with the likes of of Amazon and and Netflix and, and others in terms of you know, content production, streaming platforms, et cetera. And in the context of the clip we just listened to, what does Disney do best and what is its core strength? It is, it's creating that delightful content that, you know, reminds us and takes us back to our childhood. They've continued to do that. There's a blip in the, in the eighties, early nineties, but they've done that and they have sustained. Hmm. Uh, yes, they've come out with new innovations, you know, Disney Plus being the most recent of them, acquisition of, of Lucasfilm and, and Marvel, et cetera. But as long as they can continue to create that content, like according to, to Drucker and, and Collins, they're going to be around forever. Mm. Mm. What's interesting is there's another company. I, I, I mean, I love Disney for so many, both per- personal and professional reasons. I think Bob, Bob Iger is great. I think... Where the company is at right now is pretty amazing. When you consider how displaced other studios have become, Disney is way out in front. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned something that they've had their ups and downs. I think another interesting one on this list is Walmart. If you'd said to me ten years ago, Walmart would be having a resurgence like it is at this moment, it would have been hard to imagine. Everyone thought, ooh. Amazon is displacing it. It's too big and clunky. But, you know, these guys, they have shown us that they are a built-to-last company. So I think it's really fascinating. If you look at all these companies, some of them are uh, are enjoying peaks like uh, Walmart and Disney. Others uh, show signs of hope. I would say if I look at this, perhaps Ford, uh, P&G, but on the other hand, Boeing looks like it's in big trouble at the moment. IBM's been struggling for a while. Mm. But if you look at these principles, you wouldn't count them out, would you? N- no. And 
you you'd be like, mm, they could come back. They've been around. They've done this trick before. But what we should be looking for is maybe not how are they taking best advantage of new innovations and trying to disrupt themselves, but are they executing on their core on their core competencies and and business in 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 what made them so successful? Yes, and 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 I'm sure you'll probably. Yeah, and I'm sure you'll find that they got off track and um, really got themselves in a bit of a bind. Um, I think what's what's um, what's a really really good opportunity now to do is to sort of wrap up on the the sort of the context of "Built to Last" by Jim Collins, and uh, let's ha- let's have a listen to him uh, now talking about really about the role that strong values play in companies that really perform and are built to last. I mentioned earlier the work built to last. It was very interesting. We were studying enduring great companies in contrast to others. I went back recently and realized we selected the study set for that study in 1989, two decades ago. All 18 of the built to last companies are still standalone, independent, and almost all of them very successful companies today. If you took a random sample of large publicly traded companies 20 years ago, what are the probabilities that all 18 in your random sample would be standalone, independent, and largely successful today? The number is less, the percentage is about 0.02% probability. Not only that, 15 of the 18 built to last companies lived through the 1930s depression. What do they teach us? What has enabled them to have that? What did we find that separated them? And what we found is that what really separated them was not necessarily that they had smarter strategies, although they often did, or that they were sort of more financially savvy, although they often were. It was because they were founded first and foremost and built always on a rock-solid set of core values that are not open for negotiation. And if you look at what gave them the reason to struggle, the reason to fight, the reason to endure, it wasn't strategic, it was values. You know who I heard speaking just then? It wasn't Jim Collins, it was Simon Sinek. (laughs) Hmm. You could almost replace his entire golden uh, circle and why framework. Yeah. Which is so interesting to me because... Jim Collins owes Peter Drucker, Simon Sinek owes Jim Collins and Peter Drucker. It's it's a very interesting continuous line of of thinking here. <laughs> oh, going on a tangent for a second, can you believe that 15 of those companies survived the depression? Like you and I and and almost all our listeners we're not even born then, and these companies were surviving a depression that makes 2008 look like a walk in a park. Well, yeah, and all of these companies had, had weathered 2008 as well. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, only a, a couple on this list that you could say are no longer successful or, or, or wildly successful businesses, and maybe some are, are teetering. But again, these were picked 30 years ago, and... So I'm sure that probability goes from 0.02% mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. 0.00 something percent. <laughs> um, I, I think like what, what we can establish here before we get into how to, how to really make a vision work within an organization is what we're seeing is that they went 
and looked at thousands and thousands of years of data and found 18 companies that were built to last. And as Jim Collins just said, it came to values, came down to culture. That's why they lasted. Because they had something worth fighting for. And again, said another way, people did business with them. Employees dedicated their work lives to them because they knew what their why and their purpose was, not because they were making uh, the best widgets uh, bingo, in the world. Bingo. bingo. That's so true. That's so true. Whew. Okay, Chad. So I think we've wet our appetite to get a little bit into like how this looks and there's this big mention of vision because vision is the thing that drives culture. I think we might be ready to do a segue and hear uh, for the first time from Jerry Porras, who is Jim's uh, co-author on, on Built to Last. It's really interesting because we're going to hear a number of clips around vision, but what's really fascinating is how much you hear the word vision uh, mentioned, but actually my sense of it is so many companies just don't really know or believe in their vision. It's, it's like a strap line and nothing, nothing more. Um, and I think what we're going to hear here is that Jerry's going to set up vision for us so we can understand its true potential and, it, and its true uh, meaning. Are you, Chad? Are you ready to go deep in a world of vision? Yeah, it's it's. We're gonna hear, you know, how things can go wrong inside of companies. Not only if they don't have a vision, but the okay, well, now what? We've got the vision, so how does that help us? And what I love about these next three clips from Jerry is he can take this esoteric idea of. A company's vision, and he boils it down into much more practical terms that you can enact and, and measure uh, inside of the company, which they had to do because they were looking at these companies on paper. And how do you take this vision statement and see it in the financial statements, in the business performance, and the products they created, et cetera, et cetera? And so that's why I'm so excited about these insights that we get from Jim and Jerry as it as it pertains to vision. So we'll mm. start with a clip mm. about what's wrong today in companies uh, losing or not uh, using their vision properly. So what's happening? What's going on? You know, managers develop visions for their organizations. They go to mountaintop resorts or beachfront areas and they spend a week developing a vision for their company. And then they come back and they have something that, you know, only satisfies a portion of all the things we wanted to do for us. So what's wrong? Are they dumb? I don't think so. Did they not try hard? They try hard. Why don't they really know what's going on? And my answer is that they don't know what vision is. And that's what we discovered uh, in the companies that we studied because I, st I got tired of doing my song and dance because it wasn't very successful when managers would ask me what vision was. But if we went back to organizations and the data that we generated in our research and we used this list and we asked of our data, 
What were these companies doing that satisfied these components? One or more of these components on this list. And out of that analysis came chapter 11, which was the chapter we added to our book to describe what we think vision is. Hmm. When you, when you hear him talking about what's wrong with the world of business when we talk about vision, Chad, what examples come to mind when you, when you hear him talking about that? Do you, how do you relate to that? I, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I struggle with it myself when it has come to businesses that I've been a part of or, or been a leader in. I, I honestly struggle with the importance of the exercise, how to do it, how you know you have something good. And again, how, how do you, when you have it, how do you follow it? Uh, and how do you know that you're living up to to that vision? Yeah, and I think it, it's it's an interesting dilemma because in some ways I I think it's the the you know the board and the CEO's sole role and responsibility or accountability to be sure that the company's living up to that vision. But it can often be ha- hard to to measure the progress against that. Exactly, and I, and I think that's because it's just like a strap line on the bottom of a logo or something in an annual report. I think it's so detached from what they do and how they think. I think that's the great challenge of how vision has been treated. What's really cool is this next clip. Jerry talks about well, what role should having a vision play in an organization if you want to endure, if you want to have legacy. So let's have a listen to Jerry Porras talking about the role of vision. Vision is really the core driver of enduring organizational greatness. That it's, it's really difficult to become enduringly great, great over a long time period, without having a clear vision of what it is that you're trying to do. So this is the driver of it. Now, I keep using these words, enduring greatness, and I'd like to define them more clearly for you. For me, enduring greatness consists of two parts. One, it's performance, and it's long-term performance, and it's outstanding long-term performance. So it's not just great performance for short periods of time, but great performance for a long time period. When I say a long time period, I'm talking 10, not 10 years, but 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. The companies we studied were on average uh, 100 years old. Now, they didn't always perform at a great level for that 100 years, but they did for a vast majority of that period of time. So it's not just being a flash in the pan. It's being an enduring company that performs great over a long time period. So this is an important thing. If you don't perform well, it's difficult to call you a great organization. You know, you can be really jazzy and have all this appeal to it, et cetera, et cetera. But unless you perform well, uh, you, first of all, you're not going to last all that long. But you don't really deserve, in my opinion, to be called an enduringly great organization. So performance is the first factor. The second factor is that the organization has made a significant, and I'd like to add, in continuing contribution to the world. So you make a difference in the world. You help the world be a better, more effective place for people to live. So organizations that just make a lot of money, for example, but don't do the second part 
don't really qualify, in my opinion, to be called enduringly great organizations. And of the companies we studied, we studied 36 of them. 18 of them we called visionary companies, and the other 18 were a comparison set, a matched comparison set. We found that the matched comparison performed quite well financially. They performed very well over a very long time period. They, lived, they lasted just as long as the visionary companies, an average of 100 years. But they didn't make a substantial difference in the world the way the visionary companies did. The visionary companies are companies which you will all recognize today. Uh, we st studied them from the time they were created and studied what they did throughout their entire history. So, needless to say, we collected a lot of data on these companies. But we wanted to understand what did they do from the very time they were small and just beginning, and what did they continue doing until today, where they're very large companies. So they're companies like 3M, like IBM, uh, Walt Disney, Hewlett-Packard, Merck, Johnson & Johnson. These are all companies whose names you recognize and companies that have really made a difference in the world. As a final note about the differences in these companies, by the way, is that the visionary companies outperformed uh, the marketplace by a factor of about 16 to 1 over a 70 or 80 year period. Mm-hmm. Chad Owen, there he really lays it down. Now, we have to say one thing. We know that the clips of Jerry, they're a little bit longer than usual, but he, Chad, is laying down some serious wisdom right there, isn't he? If I had to summarize it all, to be an enduringly great organization, that was, that was the word I was looking for earlier in the show. In order to do that, I think it could be summed up by do good for the world and do well financially <laughs> in the process. And that's those are the two attributes that make you an enduringly great organization. Now, that's easier said than done, but it's interesting that the do good for the world, they put as the primary and differentiating factor between the, the control group of companies that fell off of the list and the, and the 18 companies that made the built-to-last list. Yeah, and and uh, I'm going to steal a little motto that I've I've heard a number of times, which is "Do well by doing good." Mm, I like that. Better. Yeah, doing well by doing good, and I think the big thing that Jerry and Jim say is continuously mm -hmm. doing well, like performing at a high level, and continuously continually doing good, not just once every now and then or when you've got a bit of extra profit, continually doing well by doing good. And Jerry is like, that's, that's what your vision has to support, inspire, bring alive. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. How are you going to do well by doing good? And if you look at the list of 18 companies, I think where they're faulting or faltering it's it's because they're not or they've lost the focus on the vision and the doing good i totally agree 
Yeah, I totally. I'm not going to name names here, but you, you look at the list and I'm sure that you can see some on the list. You're like, oh yeah, I've seen them in the news or, oh yeah, I've heard about something that's been not going so well. And, and I think it can be linked to their losing sight of the continually doing good and knowing that the doing well uh, follows from that as a result of right. doing good. And so I think companies, what we've learned so far from Jerry as it r- relates to vision inside of the book Built to Last, what we're learning is, you know, co- often vision doesn't play any really meaningful role in the company. It's, it's there, it's on the annual report, that's it. But what he's saying is that the, the vision uh, really must, the vision can play a massive role in supporting you becoming an enduring long-term company with a massive legacy. Mm-hmm. And he says that there is a direct correlation between the vision supporting and enabling doing well, i.e. performing, and doing good, i.e. continue to making a difference and we don't have to like get too airy fairy about doing good. Doing good can be making good, honest products that work well, that get a job done, that are fair and equitable in how they deal with customers, and that do everything in their means to do the right thing. So it's not like, hey, you have to be a certified B Corp, but it's the intention between like, Taking care of a customer when they've got a challenge. I think it's as simple as just delivering on the promise that you're making. Oh to yeah, the that's customer. a much better way. Yeah, yeah, that's that, a much better way know, of saying it. Yep. It, it can it can be a marketing statement. It can be a conversation you're having with a customer. It can be a, a brand mm. promise. You know, whatever it is, just simply live up to that. And I think that's kind of the bare minimum of doing good. You know, sure, you and I and many others are interested in in maybe being a little more helpful to mother earth or, mm, uh, you mm. know, social causes, but at the very least, just live up to the promise that you're making the customer. And a theme that has come our way several times, easy to say, hard to do. But the good thing is, uh, this last clip we've got coming up from Jerry starts to give us a hint, a suggestion, a nod towards well, what's a good vision? How does it behave? What does it do? So let's listen to Jerry Porras talking about some of the common factors of a vision from a company that is built to last. Over time, I started looking at what were the common terms or the common uh, uh, factors that existed across these various lists. And I came up with this list, which is a, a consolidated version of what it is that I heard from these managers. So they would tell me, well, look, vision should be a framework for strategy. That's what it ought to do for an organization. It ought to guide the way we develop our strategy and what our strategy contains. Well, that sounded reasonable. But then another common theme was, well, vision should be a guide for individual behavior. It ought to help tell our employees and our managers what they ought to do and what they shouldn't do. So it guides them through time and through very complicated environments. Vision should be a source of inspiration for people. It ought to make them want to be a part of our organization because we're doing stuff that they really are excited about. So it inspires them to join us in that quest. Vision should be the basis for the culture of our organization. It ought to help form the norms 
uh, that exist in our organization and guide individuals in what they do. Well, vision should guide the organization. It's a compass to guide the organization over a long time period. It ought to help us kind of know which direction we're going, but not just today, not just tomorrow or a year from now, but a very long time period. So it's the compass that kind of keeps us going in the right direction. Vision should be the glue that holds our organization together. We're all held together by this common vision that, that we all want to accomplish the same thing together. Vision should be a source of our identity. Who are we? What makes us special? What makes us unique? Vision should help us play that role. Vision should motivate action on the part of our employees and on the part of the whole organization. It ought to get, help us get things done. Well, you look, look at this list. Look at this list. It's kind of an overwhelming list. Especially if some of you are in organization or an organization that has a vision. Well, let me ask you that question. How many of you are a part of an organization that you think has a vision that you understand? Can you raise your hand? Okay. Okay. A goodly number of you. Now look at this list. And be honest with yourself. You don't have to share your information, but be honest with yourself and ask yourself, how many of these requirements for vision does your organization's vision satisfy? It's probably not many, is it? <laughs> hmm. He's offering a bit of a bit of a challenge uh, in that. So while that sinks in, uh, what I find really interesting is from a top-down approach, Jerry's saying your vision should drive strategy, but from a very bottom-up perspective, it should drive individual behavior. Now, once you just get into that thought like, okay, our vision for the kind of company that we want to be should give us inspiration for how to think about strategically where we're going, but also how I behave in this very meeting. I think that uh, as soon as you put that into context, that's where you finally go, oh, now I get how a vision should work. I, I thought it was just, you know, like a statement that I spent my week on the beach writing and then plastering on all the walls, right? Like that's, that's the vision, right? A vision statement. It's like my one sentence vision statement. Uh, yes, Chad, if that's, if that's what you want it to be, you might, you might face, face some challenges, but Hey, your, your, your paradoxical, yeah, your paradoxical perspective. It was the, the first and second things he said. It's like, it is not only driving all the strategy inside of the organization, it's, it's determining how you interact with your colleagues, uh, in the hallways and in meetings. And I think that's precisely why it's such a vexing concept for, uh, so many people. And we think we have done it right when we craft our perfectly wordsmithed uh, flowery poetic mm. vision statement, but that's not everything that a vision should be. Yeah. And I think, uh, the, the call to arms now is everyone listening, uh, to the show right now should ask themselves, Oh, damn, let's go back and check our company's vision. If we know where it is, how does this support us doing well by doing good? How is this uh, inspiring our strategy and our individual behavior? And if there's any gaps there, go fill them in, people. And 
I I love this idea, or I don't know if it's really been explicitly stated, but in take HP as an example, Hewlett and Packard, they wrote the 10 objectives at the very founding of the company and it became the HP way, which you can Google and find the, the current 2020 iteration of that, uh, probably with few to little changes if we compare the two. Yes. And yeah, yeah and yeah. I think it's yeah. that card in stone commitment that you're making as the company that drives both the strategy and the behavior that's important. So it's it's not just that it's driving the strategy and behavior. It's also that this is something that does not change over time. And it is the the crown jewels, if you will, of the entire organization that will be protected at all uh, costs. You know, when the nuclear fallout uh, hits, it's 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 been uh, dropped down into the iron vault uh, to be encased, you know, forever uh, <laughs> in security sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 Chad, I think we, we've got step number one of building a build-to-last company, you know, a company that's culture first and it starts with having a vision that helps us do well by doing good. Before we take our last clip, I just want to remind our audience anything and everything about the show you can find at moonshots.io. And in particular, I want to send a big thank you. Uh, Actually, both Chad and I are really grateful for all the people that have been reviewing the show uh, and rating the show in iTunes and Google Play. We're literally, I think, 30 or 40 people now have done it. It's so important. Jump into your little podcatcher, podcast app, give us a rating. Uh, If you want us to improve anything, just send us a note, hello at moonshots.io. It's really helpful for us because other people can discover us the more people that give us a thumbs up. So a big thank you to one and all. Yeah, and uh, I've been playing around with some of the uh, the tracking, statistics, everything for the show. Um, just some fun things. We've been rising the ranks of uh, some of the international charts, uh, becoming the 60th most popular business podcast in Iceland. So thank you to our listeners in Iceland. Uh, and jumping up to number <laughs> number 39 in Panama. So uh, those are just some some fun statistics to see. And knowing that we have listeners all across the world, Philippines, Colombia, uh, Ghana, uh, and every Tunisia and everywhere in between. That's that's crazy. That is the that is so so cool, Chad. Um, so come on you Ghanaians. Tell us who you want us to cover in the next uh, series on the the Moonshots uh, podcast. All right. So, Chad, we need to head to the world of Jim Collins. It's a little bit of a segue clip, but we have, I think, potentially left the best till last. Do you want to set up this this closing clip? Mm. Um, it, It is a rallying cry, and... It goes all the way back to one of the, I think even the first clip that we played here when it went back into to talk about Hewlett and Packard as they were founding the company. They just knew that they wanted to work together to work in this industry and space. They didn't even have a product idea. And the very that interesting insight is repeated in many of the other foundings of these other companies. And what we'll hear from Jim is the importance of not the business idea, but the people 
that are committing themselves to start this business. And this great principle that he's going to reiterate over and over again until it's seared in our brains of think, think first who and then what. When Dick Cooley became chief executive of Wells Fargo in the late 1970s, he knew he would be facing the storm of deregulation. He knew that the entire banking industry would be upended when deregulation swept through. The board, understandably concerned, asked Cooley, what is your vision? What is your strategy? Where will you lead us? How will you get us through the storm of deregulation? And Cooley had a wonderful answer. I don't know. Not only that, it's the wrong question. See, I am not going to first figure out where to drive this bus and then get people on the bus. No, I'm gonna do it completely opposite. I am not going to figure out where to drive the bus until I've got the right people on the bus. And only once I've got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people on the key seats, then and only then will I turn my attention to the question of where we will drive this bus. The best executives we've studied always think first about who and then about what. It's not about just getting a great team. It's not about finding talent. It's not about getting great people. No, the key word is first. First get right people. First get the people on the bus. First think about who. Put who ahead of strategy, who ahead of tactics, who ahead of technology, who ahead of business ideas, who ahead of everything. First who, first who, first who, then what? Do you reckon we should do <laughs> what comes first? What first? <laughs> Who's on second? <laughs> first, Chad. <laughs> oh my gosh, he was just on fire right there and just i love it i love it it's so clear it's so so clear and you can hear the conviction that he has from all the research it's all if you really want to make that vision rock and roll don't sit in the ivory tower mm-hmm. get the right people around the table i mean that is the call to action isn't it admonition of first who then what if if you can't remember that then just think of the visual metaphor of the right people on the bus first. Then you choose the destination. I, th- I think it makes it very clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. To if you believe that you're not on track to, to be an enduring great company, that you have to turn inwards, look at your team and figure out, <laughs> yeah, do I have the right people on this bus? And if not, you should make some changes. Yeah. Yeah. And get the right people in the room and ask yourselves together, why are we here? Like, why are we all here? And how do we want to get the job done? Mm. You know, how do we want to talk to each other? How do we want to support each other? Inspiring stuff, right? Yeah. It's so inspiring. <laughs> like when you crack this open, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, I'm really excited in how all of the learnings and insights from this book and this this show go right into the next one, which is good to great. I think Built to Last sent a million or two million copies. Good to Greats, I don't know, it's probably sold 30, 40, 50 million copies. <laughs> um, <sighs> so go out, buy the book, read it before the show, mm. and uh, and you can meet us on the next show when when we break down a different list of, of companies mm. that had kind of had some middling performance and then broke out relative to their peers. And again, 
we will see the determining factors for what made them different. And so we saw that it wasn't just long-term financial performance that made companies built to last, but it was making a difference in the world, the doing good. Such a, yeah, such a good summary, Chad. That is so what we can take from this book. And the good news is we've got two more coming. The next one's going to be good to great. So get ready for like a, get ready for more bus analogies is probably (laughs) the best way to, to talk about good to great and hedgehogs. And then after that, we're going to go into, into the choice episode. And that's all going to be about what incredible discipline looks like inside of a company. Mm. And, um, I can't tell you what joy it brings me to talk about these things. I'm just so into this stuff, Chad. It's so great. And I, I think we've kicked off another great another great series. Uh, and it just amazes me how each author has that we're picking just has so much to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always say this, Mike, but I feel like we could record this show in perpetuity to infinity. Uh, there's no lack of it inspiring and interesting and insightful people for us to profile. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we're diving into yet another author providing far too many insights for us to pack into just an hour long episode. So that's why we're not bringing you one episode on Jim Collins, uh, but three. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, Chad, thank you to you. Um, it's such a great new turn in the Moonshot's journey, our adventures in innovation. Uh, this Jim Collins series is awesome. I'm, I'm totally fired up and can't wait for the next show on Good to Great. I believe you're, you're, after we stop recording the show, you, you might be putting on those running shoes. Is this true? Yeah, my uh, my 2020 resolution is to complete a half Ironman with my brother. So I've got over a mile swim, 55 mile bike ride, and uh, 13.2 miles uh, in my future come uh, come late June this year. So I've got to get my uh, my my miles of running in <laughs> if I'm going to be able to keep up with the likes of my eight years younger brother. So. <laughs> I'll be hitting the trails here. <laughs> Good on you. Well, I'll be traveling with my elastic resistance bands as I head off to Europe in a couple of days. So like you, I'm I'm full of New Year's vigor. Let's let's keep each other accountable. Let's keep it going. Thank you to you, Chad. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on this adventure into the world of Jim Collins. I hope you're enjoying it as much as Chad and I are. And a whole brand new year of 2020 for the Moonshots podcast and everything it has to bring. I know, I know. So thank you to everyone. That's a wrap of the Moonshots podcast.